adventure. And you just asked me why no one knows where that mayor. I did ask you that. Yeah. Um, and by no one, you mean one person at your work. What you 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 always present her as being so central. Yeah. Her name comes up. Yeah. Well, she is very central to me, but she's also like an under, I think, an underappreciated um, writer. How did you first hear about her? That's a really good question. I feel like we've had her books on the shelf for a long time. Yeah. I alphabetized her. Yeah. Um, maybe Ariel told me about her, to read her. Is she connected to Skylar? Sort of. <clears throat> She's often mentioned, like, with the other New York school poets or the second generation New York school poets. She lived in New York and was head of the poetry project at St. Mark's um, and was friends with Alice Hotley and Ted Berrigan and their kids. And, um, she was the director of the Poetry Project for a long time, and then when she left, Eileen Miles took over for a long time. Have you read her first book? No. She published, she started publishing poems, I think when she was like 17 years old. And her, both her parents died when she was very young. Her mother first, and then her father, and she lived with other relatives until she was 18, and then she became... In New York City? Yep. Where'd she go to high school? She went to Catholic school. She's Catholic? Mm -hmm. She lived in, in, she grew up in what um, she calls, and I don't think it's just her, the disputed territory. It's a part of New York that some people say is Brooklyn and some people say is Queens. I see. Um, and she learned Latin in school. Um, Greek. Yeah, I have all of this completely 
useless information. I have an anecdote about hundreds of poets. Yeah. So I think I'm just getting my Bernadette Mayer anecdote right now. Okay. Um, well, I don't really have one. Or this, oh, oh you mean no, this whole I am, trip, yeah. this whole trip. I yeah. drove to 150 <laughs> miles. It's one line, 150 miles to bring a typewriter to, actually, you know, there's another part of it too, which is that when Judah first um, saw that we were, he asked where we were going right? and, and why we were bringing this typewriter and you showed him Bernadette Mayer's book. And meanwhile, two days ago, the uh, jingle writer of the Oscar Mayer Wiener jingle died and Judah was, I had shown him the song, the Oscar Mayer song, and he's like, oh, Mayer. And he started singing as if Bernadette Mayer were somehow related to Oscar Mayer. That is my Bernadette Mayer anecdote. Mayer Mayer. That's good. Yeah. Hey listeners, this is episode 15 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People with the awesome feminist mother poet Bernadette Mayer. You just heard me, Rachel Zucker, and my husband, Josh Gorin, talking as we drove upstate to Bernadette's home in upstate New York. When I made plans to go talk with Bernadette, I asked Bernadette's partner, poet Philip Good, what gifts I might bring for Bernadette. And Philip wrote back, well, she likes lox and bialis, not bagels, and tiramisu. If you happen to come by a nice used Smith Corona typewriter, electric, not electronic. I was so happy about Philip's lovely specificity, and Commonplace producer Christine LaRusso helped me find a nice used Smith Corona typewriter, electric, not electronic, to bring to Bernadette. I unwrapped the typewriter to make sure it worked, and my nine-year-old son fell in love with it. He'd never typed on a real typewriter before, and he typed a lovely little poem on it before we packed it up for Bernadette. Bernadette Mayer is an essentially important poet to me. She is one of several poet mothers who started writing in the late 1970s and early 1980s at the same time as they were mothering young children and made poems that included the voices of and details about these young children in innovative experimental forms that I feel constitute a radical new poetics of motherhood. I'm not just talking about women who wrote about their children, although that was hugely important then and deeply important to me when I started reading this work for the first time in the late to mid-90s. I'm talking about the way Bernadette Mayer developed a durational, epic, inclusive poetics that was maternal, domestic, full of lists and details. We talk in this episode about Midwinter Day, which is a 119-page poem all written on December 22, 1978, 38 years before the air date of this episode. There's nothing quite like this book-length poem masterpiece, and it changed my understanding of what poetry is or could be. In that book, and in all of Bernadette's work, I'm emboldened by her irrepressibility, her confidence, her weirdness, her bodiness. She is unapologetic and direct and feminist and fabulous. For these and other reasons, she has a small cult following of readers, mostly, but not only women, 
who have been changed and enlarged and turned on by her work. Links to Bernadette's books, interviews with her, and readings by Bernadette will be available on the website commonpodcast.com. Huge thanks to our patrons. We reached our goal of five new patrons, which means that we are releasing a third episode this month, this episode. And with this episode, there are a whole lot of patron bonuses. For this episode, patrons will get more of the pre-interview conversation and funny post-interview conversation between Josh and me, which is at turns more and less ridiculous than what you just heard. Patrons will also get to hear Bernadette reading a poem from Scarlett Tanager. And we're going to run a few patron raffles. All active patrons, as of December 27th, which happens to be my birthday, will be entered in these raffles to win a copy of the new edition of The Desire of Mothers to Please Others in Letters by Bernadette, courtesy of Nightboat also, a copy of Midwinter Day and Works and Days, both by Bernadette Mayer, courtesy of New Directions Press. Another patron will win The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt and Once and for All, The Best of Delmore Schwartz, edited by Craig Morgan Teicher, and a grab bag of goodies, all courtesy of New Directions Press. So there are a ton of great patron extras. To become a patron of Commonplace, visit our website and sign up today. And a great big thank you to Nightboat and New Directions. It was so much fun and honestly a bit terrifying to talk face to face with Bernadette about the legacy of our feminist foremothers. This episode contains, to my ear, the most embarrassing moment so far on the podcast, but I'm leaving it in. It was so interesting to talk to her with Josh and Philip in the room, piping up every once in a while watching us with what sometimes seems like admiration, but also a kind of benevolent oversight. I hope you enjoy this episode, whether you are listening now, when the days are short and the dark is long and the chill is near, or perhaps you're somewhere bright and warm. No matter what, let us know what you think, how you are, and thank you so much for listening. to go back to what you said when I first came in. Yeah. That you said maybe you only like poets by doulas, which probably you know, not true, but I I have I'm Well, there aren't too many doulas. No. And ones who write poetry are kind of surprising. I find. Yeah. <clears throat> so my question sort of is, do you think it makes any difference? And that's part of a bigger question, which is <clears throat> I'm trying to write this lecture separate mm. from the podcast mm. about the poetics of motherhood. Mm. And I'm sure I'm not the first person ever to have this idea. Um, but yeah. I haven't really seen a lot of people writing about your work. Um, everybody always says, oh, she's, she's one of the first people to really write about the truth and, and the experience of motherhood. But I was wondering if you feel like the forms that you used when your kids were little and continuing, not just the content of the work, but the forms and the intent and the, the, I, the whole kind of aesthetics and poetics of the work, to what extent you feel like that was 
they were informed by your experience of being a mother. Yeah. 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 Okay. Pretend yeah. I said all that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I guess. You know, I was reading this book by this, uh, somebody gave me this book by a 11th century uh, Japanese woman poet. Mm. And uh, there weren't too many critics of her work at the time. But the ones that there were said, well, who cares what she says? She's just a woman. Hmm. I mean, I doubt that anybody could, would articulate that idea, but they might be thinking that, hmm. you know. Right. I mean, there are so few, uh, up until the... 70s I feel like it's not that there were no women poets and there were no women artists of course there were but so few of them were kind of being widely read and, yeah and um, well no a lot of them don't just didn't exist mm -hmm. I mean but you know they must have existed but they didn't I couldn't find them yeah when I was writing uh I think it was midwinter day I had that feeling that that no there were no poems by women and I listed all the ones that I had find, found right. but uh, there's not that many of them and then there are critics of all of them like critics of Emily Dickinson who say you know some a black woman criticized her for being the typical poet for white people because she never fucked anybody hmm wait what's the connection between uh, because she wasn't uh a real person was the implication. And is that is also like that white people only like virginal non-real people or Yeah, like, I yeah. guess I guess that's the implication. Interesting. Yeah. And mm. it, and so, you know, it's like uh, so there were so mm -hmm. few women poets and artists, but of those women poets, even a smaller subset were mothers. Like Emily Dickinson wasn't a mother, so far mm. as we know. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I don't know, did that matter to you? Like when, when, when Adrienne Rich's book of Woman Born came out or Tilly Olson's Silences, were, yeah. was that, were those things meaningful to you? And, and did, did they feel like permission giving or were they kind of not on your radar so much? You were already writing by the time those books I came out. I read them all, but, uh, but I was particularly anxious for other women to have written or to be writing who had children so mm -hmm. that I could find out what they were thinking. I mean, I mean, this, you mentioned Midwinter Day. You can see mm. this book. Oh, <laughs> it's <good>. very Im <laughs> important to me. I mean, like I've taught it, I think four times. I've read it many times. It's falling apart. The spine is ripped. Like, you know, I think this book is like deeply, deeply meaningful to me. And I think Part of why, or the simplest reason, is that exactly what you said. You know, when I read this book, I see a woman with children writing, and I yeah. see, you know, I see the maternal imagination, and I see a space opened up for me to write the poems that I had previously thought before reading this yeah. book I wasn't supposed to write, or yeah. that's not poetry, right? Or don't do that, yeah. Um, you know. <clears throat> And you know it's not just this book. I, it's it's so much of of your work. Um, but you figure if I were a male poet, uh, but I, that couldn't be. 
I couldn't be myself. But anyway, if I were, <laughs> uh, I would probably have more money than I do. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Do you, ha, can I ask you about that? Like, Sure. Yeah. I mean, so... <clears throat> Do you, how much of it is, is being female? How much of it is being a mother and having st begun writing and having children at a young age and then making choices based on being a mom? Or how much of it was just opportunities that weren't open for you or yeah. a reception of your books that was not the same as it would have been if you'd been a male poet? Yeah. Well, growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, you encounter that problem a lot, which really doesn't theoretically exist anymore. Mm. A total exclusion of women from poetry. Mm -hmm. So now nobody has the nerve to do that. But, I mean, they just pay lip service to women existing as poets. And I think it's great that I get to read other women poets now. Mm -hmm. I mean, but uh, there were a lot of really stupid things that happened, including the fact that uh, once when I was the director of the Poetry Project, Paul Auster came by, and he had just edited the 20th century French poetry anthology. So I said to him, Paul, what's the matter with you? And I got physically abusive to him. And I said, there's no women in your book. And he was seemed very surprised. And I said, why are you surprised? Do you, you think you can get away with that? I know some 20th century French women poets. Why don't you edit the book with me? Yeah. And I think I scared the wits out of him. <laughs> but, uh, but I was absolutely right. So next time he put it out again, and Anne-Marie Albiac was in it. But just one? Just one. Ugh. And he felt that that was, like, sufficient to... <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was so, his... What I was mean, his it's hard to deal with that kind of shit. Was he, res was he apologetic at the moment? Or you said no. he was surprised. He was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, why are you being this way? Yeah. You know, uh, and I'm totally used to that. When I was growing up in Lower East Side, well, I was already grown up. I was about 22. Uh, there, were, uh, We had a pretty Id idyllic time mm. because we'd stand on a street corner with all these men. There, there was no other women who would do that except uh, occasionally Ann Wallman, but she was never there, and occasionally wow. Alice Notley. Mm. So... Uh, and we would just discuss poetry all the time. Hmm. And I realized after a while that all these men uh, just thought of me as somebody to fuck. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, that's what they were thinking. Yeah. They weren't, they were talking to other men about sonnets and stuff, but they weren't, they didn't talk to me about poetry. Was there anything good about that? I mean, yeah, it was yeah. pretty idyllic. Yeah, and we could plan a poetry magazine, uh -huh. and uh, and then walk to some place where there was a. First, we'd walk to some place, several places to get the work mm -hmm. for the issue, 
And then we'd walk to some place for there was a mirror refugee. Hmm. So, yeah, it was very idyllic. Because you and Alice and Anne had a kind of uh, well, privacy a- based Alice, on their exclusion. Alice and Anne stayed out of it. Uh-huh. I mean, I think uh, Ted did a number on Alice and Anne was off in some other world. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what that world was all about. Hmm. But... Uh, does I, your relation, your friendship or relationship with Alice Notley continued since she? I mean, and she's in Paris now, and um, no, Alice started doing this funny thing, where every time, at the end of my time on, in that neighborhood, where every time I walked down the street, if she was, going the other way, she would cross the street. Wow, why? I don't know, and uh, I asked my friend Peggy why she was doing that. And Peggy refused to tell me, so I asked her over and over again. And finally, she said, but I don't think she was leveling with me. Well, Alice is just jealous. Hmm. And I don't think that's really true. Hmm. And so I still don't know Hmm. why she crossed the street. Wow. Ted and Lewis had just had that battle about the sonnets. Mm -hmm. So there was that going on, but that had nothing to do with me and Alice. And I already had told Alice that we should just stay out of it because it was totally stupid, uh, which it was. Huh. So it must have had something to do with that and or Ted himself exerting his, you know, super masculine uh, powers <laughs> over Alice not to uh, associate herself with another woman, hmm. right? Especially a woman like me. Ted once said to me, uh, he was in the office at the Poetry Project, he said, I can't believe that you, a woman, are the head of the Poetry Project. Wow. Yeah. Uh Yeah. So, I mean, that was pretty overt, so I knew. And then he did this thing, he put his arm down on my desk so I couldn't move, like, in front of me. And I said, Ted, you must be kidding me. <laughs> what was that all about? He said that he was like an, a senator in uh, the poetry world, but I was the president. So. I wish you were the president right now. Yeah, frankly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I wish you were going to be the oh, next, you mean the pre- United the next States president. president. Yeah. yeah, I mean that would be that would be good. I am against fracking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you have my vote. I mean, all, all these guys come come across Paul Auster, Ted Berrigan. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're all coming across as like you know some kind of poetry mm-hmm. version of Donald Trump, like mm-hmm. intimidating. Oh, yeah, Eileen Miles ran for president. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, was so it's so interesting, though, because you said that it was idyllic, but then part of it sounds kind of horrible. Well, it was partly idyllic yeah. to be able to do that, to just to be able to live in that neighborhood compared to now mm-hmm. where you could walk everywhere was kind of idyllic uh, because you can't do that anymore. Everybody has to get on a fucking subway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not really conducive to happiness. So. And what what happened when you left New York? Did it, did it, did that dynamic 
change? Like, you know, you... Well, gradually everything changed because nobody could afford to live there anymore. Mm. So, uh, but I don't really know how, what changed. I mean, Al still lived on St. Mark's Place uh, for a little while. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the year she went away. Um, but I don't know. Really. Yeah. Do you feel like you, you said like now people play men pay lip service to women and, and women's poems, but do you feel like things have changed on a deeper level? Do you now, if you, you know, if you were having that same interaction with Paul Oster or with, I don't know who, who are the you know important male, um, poets or editors in your life now, but at this point, do you think they really uh, deeply have a, an interest and a respect for for women and for women's poetry, or do you think it's kind of like, oh, we know we have to say yeah this and that, but we yeah. don't really, we still think the real I poetry. Hope that, is, I hope it's all changed. Yeah, I'm hoping that, but I couldn't prove it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's always confusing to me whether to be pleased or offended when somebody writes about one of my poems or one of my books and, and, and writes about it as like a, you know, not this term, but like writes about it as, oh, she's writing about the domestic. She's writing about yeah. children because I am. Yeah. And that, that seems accurate and that seems really important to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I do wonder to what extent that kind of critical reception is also a way of not just contextualizing, but belittling or mm -hmm. demeaning because from my point of view, that's what I'm looking for, and it's a it's a sacred yeah. topic for me. But I think maybe for the people who are saying that, they're saying, "Oh, well, if you like that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, life, <laughs> you like life, <laughs> you you might like this. But otherwise, if you like something important, <laughs> go to someone else." Yeah, right. Yeah. Love, death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I have a question that I don't know the, the right words to ask, so I'm just going to ask it. Um, I have a, a dear friend of mine, Ariel Greenberg, and we've written a lot of stuff together, <clears throat> and your work is also really important to her as well. Uh -huh. And we wrote a book um, collaboratively called Home Birth, and it was about kind of the stage in both our lives of getting pregnant and having babies and the the birth culture and the anti-birth culture and really feeling like we wanted to embody our lives as women and as witches and as, yeah. you know, like powerful. Um, and so now we're working on something else that maybe it'll be a book, maybe it won't, but it's about mm. this next stage of our lives where we're not having any more kids mm. and we're sort of looking at what, like what's going to come next. Like mm. how will, will, menopause or the crone stage which is like <laughs> such a terrible word but you know what how will that stage of our lives what what might it bring us in terms of creativity or wisdom yeah. or freedom so she I said what do you want to ask Bernadette you know yeah, going uh, there uh, she uh, said ask her about being a crone oh so what's it like interesting yeah 
Well, am I a crone? I don't know. I mean, I guess the woman across the road is definitely a crone. Really? Well, yeah. So what is a crone? Well, it's this person who looks a certain way. You know, uh, well, as far as I am concerned, uh, have you seen a recent picture of Jerome Rothenberg? <laughs> he looks. He looks like a crone. I, I think a crone is actually a woman who has wisdom and is is beyond having yeah is, but the is, word crone doesn't i know but that really but, imply that well i think from if mm. only from the sort of patriarchal conception of crones the same way that virgin doesn't really mean someone who's never had sex it really could mean someone who belongs to herself and who is you know like athena and powerful yeah but it doesn't really mean that okay so it means let's pick a different word who doesn't have a sex Okay, so has let, never had sex. All right, so let so like what's a what's a you know a good feminist? I think a crone would crone. just be a really old woman. All right, so that's I don't know not if I'm old enough. Though. Yeah, I don't think you are. So we're not. I asking have to that. be like ten years. Alice is eighty, so she would qualify as a crone. All right, mm. I think what I want to know is what's mm. it like to be. Um, to have adult children, mm. um, to <clears throat> be in, uh, yeah, well, that for one, like how has your work changed or how has your life changed and your creative life and your sense of yourself now that your children are grown and I don't think any of them live here, right? No. Yeah. They don't. That Marie is 40. Mm -hmm. The year that I turned 70, Marie turned 40. Mm. So I tried to get her to write. She often writes with me. Mm. So I, I tried to get her to write something about those that coincidence. Yeah. But she wouldn't do it. Does she have children? No. No. Marie's gay. Uh-huh. Well. She could still have children. Yeah, that's true. But she does. Do, but you do have grandchildren, right? You. I have one. Uh-huh. And who's coming this weekend. Nice. Yeah. And what's, mm. how, is that... What's that like? Well, she's in New York. I hardly ever see her. Mm -hmm. uh, but I get to see her once in a while. Your granddaughter. And yeah, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. I feel totally awkward because I don't feel like as free with her as I remember I did with my own children. But for me, having had a stroke uh, maybe is uh, more earth-shaking than anything you're asking me. Mm. Let's and talk that's, about that then. That's, no, I don't want to talk about oh, it. Then let's but not. that's why <laughs> I feel awkward with Zola. That's huh. her name. Because I don't, I don't feel, when she was a baby, I didn't feel free to pick her up. Mm. Uh, and there, there's all kinds of problems mm. for me. But I realized all my problems are stemming or stem from I having had a stroke. Hmm. I mean, I really don't like to even say that, but it's true. Hmm. So, sorry. She just said that her, she, you described your being a mother, your mother years as free, as being in time of freedom. Yeah. Which is fascinating, which is yeah. shocking to me. That's not usually <laughs> how one hears mothers describe their, their role. You feel less free with your grandchildren than you do with your new 
did with the children. Oh yeah, you know I said uh, in this in that interview which Marie read that it was much more fun to hang out with my kids when they were little I, than yeah. it is to hang out with them now. And Marie got really offended, <laughs> but she didn't really have the nerve to to carry it out. <laughs> she said, "She said, oh, I hear you liked us better when we were little." I said, "Yeah, I did." Yeah. Well, you didn't I really mean, say that. You just no. said it was more fun. Yeah, yeah. Huh? And it was more fun to hang out with them. Did you feel mm. at the time that they were little that it that it was a burden and a limitation to have kids as well as it being fun? Or was it just... I would feel it sometimes when I had to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. I remember pushing a stroller and thinking when I had my third kid, how, what am I going to do? And what I forgot was that one of them was going to be able to walk. Right. I mean, I didn't remember that. Mm. <laughs> Insane, right? What's the age difference there? Uh, it's two, three, two, three, two. Uh huh. Yeah. But talk about how you were able to write so so much during that time period. Yeah. Please. Oh well, I made Lewis. Uh, for one thing, it was not easy to do, but it was not difficult either. I made Lewis stay home hmm. so that he could take the early morning shift. I could sleep late. And then I could do the afternoons mm. so that every night around six o'clock, I would have the whole night free, except for if the, one of the kids woke up, uh, to write. Huh. So that was no problem at all. Not the secret was not living in New York City. Because then you would have had to have a job that would have well, been more. It would have been more expensive uh -huh. and I would have had to answer the phone. Huh. This is a major problem. Okay. In New York City, I find. But so, do you not have a phone? Yeah, we have a phone. <laughs> yeah. It's right there. Because they, because yeah. you could. But it doesn't ring as much as in New York City. So it wasn't just it. It was like you. You had a community there of friends and people, and so they were calling you and taking your writing time and. Yeah, I don't know why the phone would ring huh. so often. So I got in the habit of. Uh, staying up all night writing and uh, often I would be awake when the kids were going to school hmm. so I'd fix their breakfast and then go to bed Wow! but uh, this was in New York City and uh, it was perfect for me hmm. but uh, everybody thought I was kind of crazy but that's when the phone would ring <laughs> and all day while I was asleep I just didn't answer hmm. so I mean I guess I should have had the nerve to be a total recluse. But how can you be a recluse in New York City? I've never understood that. Yeah. I mean, Mar Rosemary did. My mm -hmm. sister did, mm -hmm. sort of. Uh, because she her stairs to her loft were so steep that hardly anybody could go up mm -hmm. there to visit her. So, I mean, weird. Also... Mind. No, not at all. Who was it? Or you don't have to say who it was, but I remember you told me a story where someone said you had no right to have children. Oh, that was Barbara Bard. Oh. Yeah. She came up to me at the bar at the Ear Inn <laughs> where there was a reading series, and she said, uh, you have no right to have children as a feminist. Hmm. And 
So I said that to Barbara when I saw her recently. She lives in Chicago now. And she said to me, oh, don't pay attention to anything I said then. I was high on heroin. Oh, wow. <laughs> she should have told me then, right? Wow. And did that, did that, you know, uh, make an impression on you? Or did you just think I've always wanted to be a mother? Forget, forget you. Uh, I thought Barbara was crazy. Uh-huh. And I paid no heed to what she said. It is interesting how often women... Well, I guess people tell each other what they mm. have a right or not right to do, right? Mm. Like, who was it? Alice Walker said, you, people, you know, women writers should have a child, but only one. Yeah. Just that's, uh-huh. you know, definitely don't yeah. have more than one. And Barbara, Barbara Guest said to me one time, uh, I can't imagine having any children without help. Hmm. Okay. Are, are we ready? All ready to hire help? <laughs> so it doesn't sound like you felt like there was a big conflict between being a writer and being a mother. Those no, were there were. I together. didn't feel that there were, were, but there was. But but I'm crazy. I'm obviously crazy. You don't seem crazy well, to me. Lewis took the morning shift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. He, so. But I had to make Lewis go on welfare to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not a, an easy struggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I thought it was a great idea, great plan. Yeah, no yeah. telephone. <clears throat> Husband or partner takes the morning shift. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like getting, you know, the secrets to to doing this. Steep stairs. The, definitely have steep stairs. I mean, I understand that's someone else, but like, or don't live in New York. <laughs> I mean, now all of technology is about avoiding the stairs and the tele- using the telephone, like to to. Yeah, but everyone's so plugged yeah. in and yeah, right. That's what he means, like advice. Yeah, avoiding what? Yeah, like being available. You have to be available. No real contact. Right. But uh, the recluse question, like of how you. Yeah. Like, can you even be a recluse now because of all the technology mm-hmm. yeah. in one? Well, you can if you don't use it. Right. Uh, I don't use the computer. I mean, it's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of my not really. Knowing how to use it. Mm-hmm. I tried to get, I thought my problem, I remember years ago, my problem was I always said men teaching me how to use the computer. Uh, I don't know if you know this book by Rebecca Solnit. It's called Men Explain Things to Me. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh-huh. But anyway, so I figured I'd get women teachers. So I, I enlisted my daughters to teach me separately. And I still didn't learn. Hmm. I mean, what is wrong with me? There's something in my brain that maybe doesn't want to use the computer. But, I mean, there's no reason that I have to. No. Yeah. Do you still or, mm. uh, write at night? Is that your, is that, did that stay with I you? I don't really know what mm-hmm. I do. No, I don't because I like to be out in the daytime up here, mm-hmm. like, uh, walking around hmm. so yeah so I don't write and what, I what are your days like now that you're uh, not having as much fun with your kids right <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mostly I walk and I read hmm. that's mostly what I do do you, do you but you have to realize that I'm really an old person well 
Not like the one across the street. <laughs> Not as old as her. <laughs> we had this ongoing battle with neighbors around me, like where they say, "I'm no, I'm poorer than you are." You know, here's Brett. No, she's older than I. Am. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Mm. But Brett's writing in the on the typewriters that we try to accumulate is mostly daytime and uh-huh. and back porch looking out the window and then it's funny because before you know it Darlene, you know Grant realizes there's a, a you know there's a collection there something mm-hmm. happening right yeah I, I mean think Grant sometimes I don't know if he's I'm not, I don't know it's very interesting <laughs> the way I work now uh whenever I write I use this goldenrod paper huh. it just sort of happened and uh when I'm not when I'm typing but not writing something I don't use it so that when I have to put a book together or look for a poem I can just look for that colored paper huh <laughs> yeah, and then will give me the, the poem to put into the computer uh-huh you know, it has to go into the computer these days no matter right. what so you need someone to yes do that. so you say so I get no well <laughs> that's what I say. but it's funny because on this piece of paper you'll see some poems but in the corner, there'll be like she's doing the jumble puzzle, right? Or, or some random note, or or that has nothing to do with the. And then I have to ask for it, like, where's the, where's the poem? Where's the note to the jumble or the note to, to this whatever? Well, ideally speaking, yeah, there would be no difference uh-huh. between those things, right? So, that's the direction I'm going in. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't know, really. I mean. <clears throat> people seem to like my new book. I was afraid they wouldn't uh, because it was so anarchic, but it includes a lot of the jumble words from the with the mixed-up letters. Right. So they were just on the paper where I was writing, hmm. so I included them. But why not? I mean, I love the anarchy and the wildness yeah. of, of all of your work, you know, and all the things that you include, the, the puzzles, the books at the library, the weather, what's happening. The guy at my archive who was this congenial guy. I forget his name, the first guy, uh, said, you know, he was giving a lecture, and he, it was at some thing about me, symposium, and he said... The great thing about your archive, Bernadette, is that you put these letters into the books. Hmm. So, and I, I continue to do that. I use somebody's letter as a placemark, mm-hmm. and then the, it winds up in the archive with this stuff in the books that is really not, doesn't belong there. Hmm. But I mean, uh, Okay, in that book about the 11th century Japanese poet, uh, the, some Japanese poets' work got preserved. And the only way things were preserved then is by a scribe writing them down. Mm. And uh, they unearthed them, and they were all the manuscripts were in this box. So they were taking them out of the box, and all of a sudden a wind came and blew, scattered the papers all over. So the, this work of this Japanese poet 
was always out of order. Wow. And nobody, everybody said, it doesn't make any sense. We can't figure out what he's getting at. It was a guy, mm -hmm. what he's getting at. <laughs> Isn't that great? It is great. I hope the it's a great story to tell is, your is like you know shutting the windows so everything doesn't blow all, <laughs> all around. Um, I'd love to ask you a question about <clears throat> the archives, sort of, but but also the poems. Like, have you ever gotten in trouble or had? This is a big, major topic for me. Um, <clears throat> Have you ever, have people ever been upset by having been included by name or not by name in your poems or the things, a yeah, letter going funny. in? Yeah, that's no. No. I've never had a problem. Uh, when I did that book with Bill Berkson, uh, What's Your Idea of a Good Time, mm -hmm. we took it very carefully, took out, Bill and I, all the sections that might offend anybody. Huh. So it's time for the book to get published. Lynn Hedinian is the publisher. She puts them back in. Interesting. And still, nobody cared. So all our work, all Bill and I's work, was for naught. Nobody would have cared. The person I think who would have been most offended was Harris huh. Schiff. But I guess he never read it. So The sections that, uh, that you you and Bill planned to take out mm -hmm. was the idea that uh, it was a person who was just always sensitive or was it something that you had said about well, that Well, something person? we said at the moment mm -hmm. because there were letters we wrote to each other. But uh, but we, then we didn't want it to be in print, mm. like offensive to another person. And your kids have, how do your kids feel about being in your poems? And Oh, they feel horrible. Really? They, they really do. Uh, in their old age, they're beginning to feel like used or huh. abused. Interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, I know Sharon Olds took her Nate, her kids' names out of reprintings of, of her books. But really? It doesn't really change anything. It, uh, it's it's still her identifiable as her son and her daughter. Yeah. Um, but gee, maybe I should take their names out of everything. I I'm not mm. criticizing Sharon. Um, everybody has to make their own choice, but I hope you don't do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the many things that I love. Well, about the your problem work. with uh, doing that is that the sounds of their names are an integral part of the writing of that about mm -hmm. them. So it would be kind of Difficult, yeah. difficult to do that. Are you concerned about yeah, my? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a notification or something. I know. Oh. Still, everything is still a okay. Mm -hmm. We're we're all we're all good. Um, are there mm -hmm. things that you wouldn't write about for the same reason? Um, like because you would worry, or there are there? Th I mean, you're. Uh, I never wrote about sex because I really didn't know. How to? Hmm. I mean, I did when I did. I would write a poem or something, but I never wrote it about sex in any of the longer poems because, like, just to incorporate it as a part of everyday life, it's kind of a cop out not to write about it. Mm -hmm. I feel, but I just felt awkward. As was it because. 
propriety is not something I associate with, no. with you. No, what it wasn't was it? Was it propriety? Yeah. It was just that I didn't know how to put it into words. Interesting. And I couldn't immediately do it. Hmm. So I just said to myself, fuck it, forget it. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm probably not. I probably I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that wasn't about mm. worrying about what someone else would think. It was no. just like, how do I, I don't know quite how yeah. to do it. Interesting. Yeah. So there's no sex in Midwinter Day. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what pre- prevented me from writing about it. But anyway. When did, when do you, you want, you go Is there ahead. anything else in that category that, of something that you couldn't put into words that you avoided or sex unique in that? I think, uh, well, now you're gonna, you're gonna be privy to all my weaknesses. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's a weakness. You, I mean, I, you could argue it sort of feels sacred almost to me. I never could write really write about death either, mm. uh, and I've certainly experienced enough of it to have to be a, to have written about it, but I never really could do that either. Mm. Because, for the same reason, I couldn't figure out how. Mm. So maybe that's what I have to do in my old age, is write about sex and death. But I'll, I'll make sure to put maybe them sex both in, in each poem together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, every time I teach Midwinter Day, um, <clears throat> the students say, yeah, but when was she actually writing it? When was she in the day? Yeah, really. You know, everybody wants to know that. Well, it's interesting because uh, people, whenever people ask me questions about Midwinter Day, the first one is very predictable, is how could you really write it in one day? Mm-hmm. And when I explain it to them, it's as if they they didn't really care. Hmm. I mean, what they wanted me to say was, well, I did it by magic, of course. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. It, alchemy. <laughs> right? I mean, it was... But actually, that's true. Because when I started writing that book, I mean, it is hard to believe, but all it was like tracing. Mm. Like, the words were already on the paper. Mm. And I would just bring them out. Mm. I mean, they were there. Behind the paper. Hmm. And did you... Interesting. Yeah, fascinating. <clears throat> did you have, like, a notebook with you the whole day? No. 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 You. It was sort of, like, in there and ready, and or ready here. I'm doing... Mm-hmm. I'm look, pointing to my face, but here, somehow the words were... Happened during the day, and then you were able to kind of pull them up? Well, I had all kinds of tricks. Like, I kept a tape recorder mm-hmm. in the closet so I could go in there and talk to it. So I, I situated these things. I had typewriters situated around the house. Mm. And uh, when I went for a walk uh, outside the house, I I brought a, a little notebook along. Uh-huh. So, but, and just in case. But I had done a lot of things beforehand. Like gone to the bookstore mm-hmm. and written down all the bestsellers, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always associate the writing of memory 
with that book, Francesco Scavulo, you know. <laughs> we just read, I just read you that part from the, on the way oh, up really? here. Oh, really? Yes, that's so funny. That of everything weird. that you would pick that. Yeah. That's wild. Well, it's from that time. It was yeah. a bestseller. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. In, it's in there, yeah. <laughs> Song of Solomon's on the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so funny. <clears throat> yeah, That definitely. is funny. <laughs> but you know, to, I mean, you talk about having a tape recorder yeah. with you. I mean, now you could just, you know, yeah, your, the phone, you could record well, yourself at all, all the time. It's a lot of trouble. I need ice and lemon. Yeah. <clears throat> like there's all these technological solutions that theoretically yeah. you could have. You, if you wanted to record everything all the time, you yeah. could. I'm going to let you answer Josh's question. I know, it's amazing. Well, I always had that, had that idea about the computers, that eventually, and apparently this is going to happen eventually, uh, computers will automatically be recording whatever you're thinking. You like that idea? Yeah, I do. And you know what? Uh, everybody says to me, well, who's going to read it? <laughs> and I say, here's my answer, me. I mean, read your own. Read everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Oh, everybody. The whole. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the text of everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what kind of memory does a computer provide for people? This is a very interesting question to me. I mean, I just can't figure out whether the stories of you doing mm -hmm. that recording and the, the technology is you both useful but it's also like provide some resistance like you have to push the keys and you know push the buttons and when you leave the house it doesn't come with you and but the but now without that resistance somehow oh, i hear you, you saying that you that you like it but i kind of feel like maybe you would i kind of feel like maybe you wouldn't like it like what to, to just, if I just gave you this and you could just record all day on this phone. No, I think what Brad's speaking of is, is <clears throat> the way the, the, how the brain works and how your mind works and how it becomes these weird things that, just, <clears throat> that you read on paper on our devices. But then, as I mentioned <clears throat> earlier, I had witnessed the beast practically thought the page instantaneously. <clears throat> Brad always talked to me about this years and years ago before we had these devices, like Weisinger machine that could record our dreams, mm -hmm. even, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you've seen her journals, the studying hunger journals, uh, I mean, this is this, this idea of how does the consciousness work, and how do we get this immediate access, mm -hmm. is that what you mean? Yeah. And, and, and it sounds a whole bunch of boring to other people, like, we're going to read everyone's thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's friends. everybody's first thought. <laughs> Every, right. Like, who's going to read it? But that's, you know, I, I was <laughs> saying to Josh on the way up here mm -hmm. that that I heard this, uh, I think it was a long time ago, but this interview between you and Charles Bernstein, where he uh, says to you, um, well, but you wouldn't want to just record everything would you <laughs> and you say yes i would <laughs> um and in that moment you know i i remember listening to that and i was like yeah um, <laughs> you know and it's it, i mean i think it's really interesting because some people's idea of art is that the whole the artist's job is to kind of like curate yeah. and to yeah say this is important this is important to and make the 
perfect poem. Right, which is so <laughs> antithetical to anything mm. I'm really yeah. passionate about. Uh-huh. But I think everybody's mm. afraid that if we, you know, it's going to be boring or it's going to be chaos or it's going to be how will we know what's art and what's not art if we're if we're trying to like be really inclusive about recording states of consciousness, of recording our dreams, like, you know. Like, I'd like to just pose this interesting question. If there were, if it was possible to record everything that goes on in each of our minds, what would the recordings of animals be like? Mm. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love it myself. Or I how mean, about trees? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But in the morning when you wake up, Rachel, and yeah. you have had a dream, yeah. you have like a 15-minute window in which to record it, I've noticed. Yes. And if I interrupt you during that 15 minutes, it's really bad. Very grumpy, yeah. Um, now, <laughs> if you had a machine mm-hmm. that you woke up uh, and there was just a printout, yeah. would, you, would that be a good solution? Mm-hmm. Or, would you, or is part of it, is it necessary... Is it a necessary part of it that you're going to do the recording? Well, you know, in in my book, The Pedestrians, one of the things that, and I think this really comes out of reading your work, Mm. I wanted to break as many of the rules that had kind of been set out for me. And one of them was I I do keep a dream notebook. And I was at a writer's colony, the only time I've ever gone to a writer's colony. And where was it? Virginia Colony of the uh. Arts. Um, you know, it wasn't a great experience for me. It wasn't bad. But one of the things I did in part because I kind of just didn't I was flailing about. And I also someone had said to me, well, you shouldn't put dreams in your poems. And I was like, oh, that's the that's the <laughs> dumbest. Like, that, uh, really? And so I, I just typed up the dream <laughs> journal. Yeah. And it was really important to me to I mean, I, I edited mm-hmm. a little bit like for sentence or whatever, but it was really important to me not to make something out of the dreams, but just to report on yeah. the dreams. Not mm-hmm. that someone can't do that, but and I wanted to put the dreams side by side with the poems. Yeah. And I wanted to, you know, put the poems side by side with, you know, these I was at the time I had this rule for myself that every time I was at a poetry reading, I would have to write a poem at the poetry reading. And so there there's these yeah. there are these like kind of insidery Did you have rules about your dreams? Do you try to control the dream for the what you want to write later? Some everyone's you know, I haven't been dreaming very much mm. in the past few years. I think I've been kind of blocking. Yeah. 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 Why do you think? My mother died, and yeah. at, after she died, uh, I had a lot of dreams where she I would see her in the dreams, and she was very angry and uh, not very nice, um, uh-huh. and also did not know that she was dead, um, but uh-huh. I knew, and uh-huh. so it was this whole uh, sort of traumatic exchange, and I think, I think I sort of said to my psyche, like, I can't, I, I don't want this going on. Yeah. So I used to dream and remember the dreams all the time. And lately, you know, they'll pop through, but I, I do feel like I'm kind of like controlling them. But every, I used to, and every once in a while still, I would say to myself before I went to sleep, like, okay, I need a dream or I need an important dream. or, But um, 
Yeah. But why, why did you ask? I'm curious. Well, I know Bernadette has done work with students uh, out at Europa years ago uh, with the hypnagogic, mm -hmm. the uh, and, and, you know, many people said, well, I don't remember my dreams. And then, we, then there was this whole workshop, like how to, how to train yourself. And then there was that. But then I've also heard that there have been interviews with another poet, Michael Ruby, who seems to be doing these very intentional things. To, to figure out what is it, which is the most important word or, you know, in my life during that moment, during that dream, maybe, or huh. actually, you know, and then, and then, you know, how Burnett was trying to tell me once how you would try to delete the visual in the dream, right? And you would and yeah. you see if it, it would. It that would was work. mostly in hypnagogic imagery. Though. Right, well, it, yeah. Well, it's just yeah. Tired mm. of dreams, right? Yeah, no. There, there's a distinction mm -hmm. to be made. That's yeah. why I asked. <laughs> yeah. I had a series of dreams uh, a long time ago that I was giving these poetry readings. And in one of the dreams, uh, my manuscripts, all my manuscripts had, they were illuminated manuscripts. So that the first letter was that big. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And, huh. and so I was, I, uh, I was fascinated by this, by this poetry reading, where I was standing, and all of a sudden it was a surprise to me. I didn't know this was going to happen. Right? <laughs> Did could you remember the poems when you no, woke up? No. No, I couldn't. But I remember the look of the uh -huh. manuscripts. Maybe maybe your next book should look like that. Yeah. All right. It should be illuminated. Does anybody do that anymore? I don't know. Yeah. Graphic novel. Yeah, kind kind of. No, I don't mean that though. I mean yeah. like With the, the first like letter. Like the Gutenberg Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Do, are you are you teaching now? Do you are you doing any workshops or? I'm still doing my workshop at the house. Uh huh. But we've taken the winter off, mm. so we're going to resume in April. And is is that? I, I know you've done so many collaborations. Yeah. Is the teaching? Does the teaching enriching for you, or is it like something you kind of have to do? Uh, it's very enriching. Mm -hmm. I love doing it. I mean, I love hanging out with my students. Uh, all the, the I, this used to happen to me when, wherever I've taught. Like all this time surrounding the teaching is terrible. Hmm. But the teaching itself is great. Wait, so what, what, like? The before, the before time uh -huh. and the after time, terrible. Terrible, why? Uh, or how? Because beforehand, I get sometimes I get really nervous that I really truly understand something that I'm about to convey to the students. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm not supposed to care, right? But you know, I really do profoundly. And then afterwards, I just feel completely drained and at loose ends, and I wish that I had some place to be immediately afterwards. You know, it's just all fucked up. Mm -hmm. So probably I shouldn't teach, but I really enjoy doing it. But I don't like planning for it, and I don't like the afterwards. I We read Midwinter Day. Um, in, At NYU? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, my undergraduates mm -hmm. and my graduate students separately. And one of my students turned in. Um, I had been talking so much about 
being more permeable and 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 not so rigid and rethinking genre boundaries and rethinking life and art boundaries and I'd been talking about motherhood and I'd been talking about the way in which um, motherhood is about interruptibility and also not you know the the kind of indeterminacy of like being one person and two people like you're it's it's yeah. much more fluid so we're talking about all the stuff okay yeah. and mm. i don't i never know who's listening and who's just thinking i wish she would be quiet i don't know what she's yeah. talking about <laughs> you know i don't want to have kids be quiet you know um and then this student of mine turned in a very 90 page poem um, with artwork and and it, it you know it was incredible and it did exactly what I'd kind of been talking about like it it was such a new form and a new thing and so provocative and so you know breaking all the rules wow. and and mm. then of course I you know it created all sorts of you know upheaval and I had exactly this thought I was like I asked for this. Yeah. <laughs> I signed up for this. <laughs> I have, don't have enough boundaries for this. I care way too much about this student, about the students reading it, about everything. I just need to like get in bed and pull the covers up and not have this happen. But I, this is exactly what I wanted to have happen. Mm -hmm. And all of that, you know, um, just swirling around and not knowing what to do. And then I thought, well, yeah, I just gave the midwinter day. What did I think was going to happen? You know, she put my name in the poem, which was <laughs> fine with me. <laughs> you know, she, she put her phone number in the, po like there were, there mm. were all sorts of interesting things that were yeah. making everybody freak out. Mm. Um, including me. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So I, I often think I shouldn't be doing this. I don't have the, I don't have the right. I, I, if I keep caring this much, I can't, I can't keep doing this, but then I love it. Yeah. 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 That wasn't a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't find one in no, there. No, no. It was just like, thank you for saying that I'm not the only one who seems <laughs> difficult with this. Yeah. Well, it is weird to be, uh, to write poetry. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that, that's a verifiable statement mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and then it's weird to read someone else's and to share it and to talk about it and to yeah. be in the presence are you still working as a doula i haven't been mm. to a birth for four years yeah um so and i i both miss it i do really miss it yeah but i don't miss being on call yeah and i and yeah it's it's hard now um yeah. with teaching but i do miss that that mm. work it feels very mm. sacred and mm. and and also totally not sacred because so much of it is like someone throws up and mm. someone poops and somebody mm. you know and i that was really important to me to be mm. doing physical work um that was uh you know non-intellectual in in a certain way mm. very concrete mm. um very durational <laughs> yeah um no it's a, the perfect thing to do along with being a poet mm -hmm. i mean well the other william th Collis williams was sort of a doula 
Right. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I was the other thing about it that is really nice is that you have a very intense relationship with someone for a very limited period of time. Yeah. And with teaching, it's uh, not really like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I, I, um, I think I read somewhere that you're making a poetry map. Oh, that? well, I'm not making it. I'm trying to make, but trying it means I know I can't do it or yeah. I have to get somebody else to do it. I'm trying to make a map of my dreams. Oh. You know, wouldn't that be funny? I would love I have this, this book on the table uh, of hand-drawn maps. Uh-huh. My hands are useless, so it would have to be somebody else. But there are certain places in my dream life, it's like a land, and it's always the same. Hmm. So I could easily make a map of the whole dream world. Or my dream, it would be of my dream world right now. Uh-huh. It wouldn't be in the past. It wouldn't include everything. Right. But, uh, but there are places when I dream now where I stop, and I know I can get a certain kind of cheese. And it's a very, it's a very soft kind of cheese, like ricotta cheese. Uh -huh. And on top of it, I put this meat, and then that's a whole meal. So this is something I pick up in my dreams. Also in my dreams are, are lately, thrift shops. Hmm. And I realized they started appearing in my dreams because that was an excuse for anything to be in my dream because right. anything could be in the thrift shop. And so I would see funny things in my dreams like nebbishes. You probably don't remember them, but uh, before your time. I thought a nebbish was the guy that you weren't supposed to stay with. Oh, no. It was a little creature okay. with uh, sprouting hair and uh, it was usually made of plastic, a little kind of statue. Like a, like a garden gnome? Uh, sort like of like that, but soft. Soft. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's called a nebbish. Yeah. Okay, this is fascinating. Like a garden gnome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's why the thrift shop started appearing. It might be spelled slightly differently. Okay. It has two Bs, N-E-B-B-I-S-H. So, so first the nebbishes started appearing and then the thrift shop, or they were in the thrift no, shop? No, the same time. Mm. First time I saw a thrift shop, there was a nebbish in it. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to go to that land. I mean, is it, you say land. What's the scale of this location? Is it a town? Is it a... It's interesting. Is it, does it not uh, have shape like you that? You know or? what happens to me? Uh, in my dreams, uh, very often I'm in Manhattan. Hmm. And uh, for a long time, I developed this way of walking in my dreams that involved taking big, leaping kind of steps. And it would o I would always be going up 6th Avenue, hmm. like in the downtown part. So when I got to that point, in my dream, I would always know that now was the time to leap. It was like leaping like a, you know how lemurs leap? 
And yeah, you're like almost a, flying, but yeah. you're, but this is you. Have you had this dream? I have. Yeah, me too. With your like, you're bounding. Yeah, and then, it's amazing. Yeah, it's called. Uh, people in snowboarders call it catching some air. Huh. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, right? <laughs> and you, and when you have these dreams recently, you're still on Sixth Avenue. I've always. Make the turn, mm -hmm. and then I start leaping mm. like that. Is the Jefferson Library right there? Are we on like 10th Street? It's right around there. Yeah, yeah. that's where I grew up, on that yeah. block. Uh-huh. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> so, okay, so you wake up in the morning, and then how, do you do you try to hold on to the dreams? Do you record them somehow? Do you tell Philip? Like, no, what no, I, I got in the habit. Hannah Wiener taught me this. Uh, she said... I used to talk to her about recording your dreams and stuff, and she used to poo-poo it and say, no, Bernadette, the point is just to enjoy them. Huh. So that's kind of what I do now. I think about them, hmm. and sometimes a little too long, so I'm still in bed at when I'm supposed to be somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> But but you what you do envision them as a visual map somehow or that they could be yeah yeah well it's not uh, I love that, that a, idea it would be an interesting map I just have to get somebody to draw it for me I've asked people and they've always acted as if I was kidding and why would never you be kidding had the nerve to say that I was serious. To me, it seems very connected to, to yeah. memory, to your project uh -huh. memory, you know, from... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing world. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to get into. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so if you need something at the thrift shop, just let me know. I'm more interested in the sandwich. <laughs> the, the, the ricotta and, and the meat. And meat the cheese? Yeah. yeah. What kind of yeah, meat that is that it? Yeah, interesting uh, food? Yeah, what kind of meat is it? I don't know. Oh. It's dream meat. Do you get to taste it? Like in the dream? Does I never have eaten it in the dream. Wow. I've just looked at it. Can you control, do you have lucid dreaming powers? I probably have had them, but, you know, I don't know uh -huh. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Do, do you have them? I mean, when I was young, I used to have a lot of nightmares, and my mother would say, "You really, you can, mm -hmm. you can decide what's going to happen next in your dream," mm -hmm. and she would sort of help me to to do that. And I, there, there definitely are times when I will say in the dream, <clears throat> "I know this is a dream." Yeah. Um, but no, I don't know that I can like, you know, be the author of it in that in that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask one last question and then we'll wrap it up? Um, I guess my question is so selfish, but it's sort of like, you know, what should I do next? <laughs> How should I live my life? What's a good way to keep being a poet for your whole life? You uh, become a carpenter. Oh. And then you do, you do that and you write poetry and that's your life. Well, maybe we'll all leave together because I want to go <laughs> to the I want to go to the Jacksons place and get some food. Mm. Are you hungry?
This has been episode 15 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Music written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin, artwork by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are the fabulous Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Zach Tackett. Thanks to Daniel Schiffman and to Joshua Gorin, Philip Good, New Directions Press, and Nightboat. Happy New Year. Take care. Thanks for listening. And see you in 2017.